Welcome to IFL Science, The Big Questions. In this episode, host Eleanor Higgs is joined by the co-founders of Carbon Neutral Fuels, a company that set its sights on revolutionising the future of the fuel industry in an effort to help offset climate change. Sophie and Alistair, thank you very much for joining me on Eiffel Science, The Big Questions. To start off, please could you tell me a little bit about yourselves and about your business and let's kick off talking about that. So uh, Sophie, if you want to go first. Brilliant. Thanks for having us. Um, I have a background in chemistry. I did a little bit of a stint in the nuclear industry working on medical radionuclides, but found that my real passion was in trying to understand how we can be part of the solution to solving climate change and was fortunate enough to attend COP26 in Glasgow in 2021 and met Alistair. And we had some great conversations about how can we help save the world? And that's really where Carbon Neutral Fuels came about. Great, thanks Sophie, yeah. And so I met Sophie at COP26 and uh, my journey on how I came to be at COP26 was an interesting one. Um, 15 years ago, no, it'd be more than that, 20 years ago almost, uh, I studied computer science and uh, absolutely loved doing that. And I started a company uh, that did cloud computing, which I ran for 15 years. And in parallel to that, I've always had a, an interest in energy. And um, around university time, I, I discovered this thing called peak oil, which said we were gonna run out of oil. And I read all these books about it, got really, really, really into energy. And so in addition to running my company, I started attending conferences um, and, and that led me to uh, the, the world of nuclear and then through that route to COP26. Uh, and as Sophie mentioned, we discussed starting a company. And so uh, about eight months ago, we started Carbon Neutral Fuels. Wonderful. So yeah, real sort of meeting of minds at COP26 is where it all started. Indeed. So what is a carbon neutral fuel? Carbon neutral fuel is... Well, what we were trying to achieve is helping be a part of the solution to climate change. And our ambition is that we are sequestering carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then combining that with clean hydrogen and ultimately outputting a carbon neutral fuel in the sense that when you burn the fuel, you are then releasing CO2 and then that is then captured back in as a feedstock. And our target market for that is going to be aviation industry because there's obviously a huge amount of fuel that's used in aviation. And what we would really like to do is see our fuel um, being used as a sustainable alternative. Amazing. So this kind of term, carbon neutral fuels and e-fuels, is this sort of interchangeable or is it different? What's the what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the term e-fuels comes about, I think, because the fuels are often made uh, using electricity. And with uh, traditional fossil fuels, uh, nature has done the energy collection for you. Um, plants uh, basically collect sunlight. That process has happened over hundreds of millions of years. Those plants have decayed into the ground and then become um, oil and coal, etc. And then we've, we haven't had to do any uh, energy creation. We just come along and, and dig it up or, or stick a straw in the ground. And it's effectively a free energy supply. And unfortunately, this is having the unintended consequence of filling our atmosphere up with all this uh, excess CO2, which is obviously causing climate change. And so what you can do artificially or synthetically 
is um, suck down that CO2 and turn it back into fuel, but you need to put energy in to do that. And that's where the uh, E part comes from in the um, power to liquid fuels usually use electricity uh, to, to make those fuels. And it obviously has to be low carbon electricity. Uh, you can't burn fossil fuels to make fossil fuels. That doesn't really make sense. Um, so in, in our case, we're looking at renewable energy or potentially in the future, um, advanced uh, nuclear. Incredible. So at the moment, the aviation industry runs on kerosene, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're looking to do is replace this kerosene with an e-fuel, a carbon neutral fuel? That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. We could talk you through uh, what the process looks like. Yeah, amazing. Please do. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's quite interesting. Um, the first step is capturing the carbon. Uh, when we started the company, we were actually looking at a technology pathway um, for sucking CO2 out of the oceans. Uh, one of the nice things about CO2 in the oceans is that it's quite concentrated. It's about 100 times more concentrated. Um, and the reason for that is that around half or maybe 40% of the CO2 we've emitted has been absorbed into the oceans and it stays at the surface level, which is where that concentration comes from. And so you can just stuck a, a straw in and suck it out. And liquids are a lot less... Um, uh, take up a lot less volume. There's a, maybe around a, a thousand times difference between a, a gas and a liquid phase. And so again, you have those efficiencies. But that technology pathway wasn't established, wasn't mature, um, wasn't going to be ready in the time scales that we were looking for. So we looked at uh, direct air capture and um, we're looking at partnering with some, some direct air capture companies. And they use these um, adsorbents. And so they will uh, react with the CO2 in the air. Uh, and then you use another technique to release the CO2 from the adsorbent. Um, and that gets you a, a nice clean stream of CO2. Sophie touched on this, you also need hydrogen. And so uh, a lot of people might remember from chemistry class maybe doing electrolysis where you stick an anode and a cathode in a, in a beaker, shove in some electricity and you get oxygen, uh, I can't remember if it's the anode or the cathode, and you get hydrogen at the other. And so we just collect that hydrogen and, um, and these days you can buy pretty beefy electrolyzers um, anywhere from one megawatt up to hundreds of, of megawatts. Um, once you get the CO2 and the hydrogen, you need to smoosh it together somehow. Um, CO2 is very uh, stable as a molecule, it doesn't really want to do that. So if you can convert that to carbon monoxide um, and you can combine that with the hydrogen, that's syngas. And syngas is very commonly used in the chemical industry. Once you have your syngas, you can then stick that through something called a Fischer-Troughs reactor and that does the smooshing. And the way that works is that it's got a uh, typically an iron or a cobalt catalyst and it uh, just starts growing these long chain hydrocarbons. And depending on the configuration of the reactor, conditions, the pressure, the temperature, the catalysts, uh, you can determine what um, distribution of hydrocarbons you get. And so the technology we're looking at will predominantly produce things in the, in the kerosene range. Amazing, so how long is this process like theoretically going to take if you're capturing carbon from the atmosphere putting it into this electrolysis you're adding hydrogen you're smooshing it all together and then at the end you're ending up with I don't know a gallon or two gallons of e-fuels is that is it like a, a physical liquid that you could you know see and pour into an aeroplane I believe so yeah kerosene's um clear Sophie you hydrocarbons typically clear I guess I don't know I guess so. It's a good quote. We'll let you know when we've made it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, in terms of the, the, the process, it's kind of a steady state operation. So once you get everything built, um, it will be capturing the CO2 and feeding that real time into the, the rest of the system. And um, the, the hydrocarbons will uh, come out at the bottom of the, the fissure troughs reactor vessel. You also make methane, which is kind of a, a waste product. Uh, you, you need to recycle that back in. Um, not all the CO2 reacts and the hydrogen, so you need a process for extracting the bits that haven't been used and, and funneling them back in. Um, and we're quite early on in our journey to do this. Uh, we started the company less than a year ago, and so we've also been on a bit of a business adventure. And that business adventure has been speaking with um, fundraisers uh, to, to, to raise money, and investors rather, we're the fundraiser. Uh, and then, what else have we been doing? Well... Yeah, it's there's a little bit of everything that we've had to work on, really, because power to liquid is such a new process. There isn't a huge amount of precedent that's been set um, in the UK in terms of how to, to go about building a facility. So, yeah, it's been engagement with government. The Jet Zero Council, for instance, are sort of championing the work of about how to develop um, a market and how to grow a market as well, importantly, um, because aviation is obviously an international industry and we, as the UK, we would like to be the leading that charge in terms of sustainability. So they've been doing a huge amount of work. We've been talking to investors, um, which has been really fascinating. Um, I've never raised any money before. So learning all the terminology and learning the processes and the rules and regulations and, and the sort of hurdles that you need to jump through to actually make this a reality has been really fascinating. Um, and we're also conscious about research and universities and how that sort of um, detailed element of the science comes into play. Yeah, of course, because it's so brand new. There's not sort of a framework that you can build upon, yet you are essentially making that framework. Maybe other people will build upon what you discover in a few years. What's quite interesting is that a lot of the technology pieces have already been invented. Uh, for example, fischer troughs chemistry uh, was invented um, close to 100 years ago, and they originally used it to convert coal to liquid fuels. And so that technology is established, but it wasn't widely used because we've had abundant liquid fuels. Um, and it's, it's kind of been some countries that didn't have easy access to liquid fuels. So South Africa, for example, and, and Germany um, have, have used it. Um, and then there's also electrolyzers because of the whole green transition. Those are now becoming widely available. And then carbon capture as well now. And so all it's hopefully for us, uh, all it's taking, hopefully for us, is to come along and integrate those technology pieces together to, to have a complete system for doing this. So you're basically combining sort of older technology used for a slightly different purpose and you're now sort of repurposing it to make these long chains of hydrocarbons and to make your, your e-fuel. That's right. And one key thing that is enabling this is that the governments worldwide, including the EU and the UK, are looking at introducing um, mandates uh, to require people to uplift sustainable fuels because traditionally they can, these sustainable fuels cost a lot more than, than the free fossil fuels we're getting. Um, to process fossil fuels, you just need a distillation column, and that's really just about separating out the, the different weights of the fuels, the, the light fuels the versus the heavy fuels. Whereas for us, we're actually creating these fuels from, from scratch, and that's very expensive to do. Um, but with the mandates, uh, it's, 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 it's going to compel airlines basically to, to have to uplift some of this fuel. And that will enable the development, and that will enable us hopefully to, to bring the price down over time. 
So with these fuels, let's say we're a little bit further down the line and you're producing this kerosene, this e-fuel, could you go to Richard Branson or, you know, United Airlines and say, I've made all of this fuel, can we, you know, we, this is much better for the environment, it's carbon neutral, let's put it in your plane. What would, what would he say to that? Would that even be possible? That is possible, yes, absolutely. It exists to a certain extent today. You have a thing called a blended fuel, which is where the majority of your fuel will be kerosene, traditional kerosene, but then you're slowly blending in biofuels and other sustainable alternatives. And hopefully over time, that the amount that is blended will increase in percentage terms. So one day it would be great if 100% of fuel was SAF, but then you have to think about the implications on the aircraft, for instance. So traditional kerosene or fossil fuel kerosene actually contains a lot or a certain amount of impurities and things like sulfur and um, the nasties, I suppose we would call them. But actually, they serve a lot of valuable functions in, in the actual engine of a plane in that they act as lubricants. And you need them to be there in terms of the safety requirements because it's what the plane has always been used to. So if we then come along and produce our fuel... Whilst the blended mix is fine, getting to 100% SAF will have implications that we aren't necessarily aware of at the moment. So there's a lot of testing that's going on to get us to that point, but currently it's not quite there. Sorry, you just mentioned the term SAF. Is that what you're referring to as your e-fuel? Apologies, yeah. SAF is sustainable aviation fuel. It's sort of an umbrella term. Sustainable aviation fuel. Ah, perfect. I'm, I'm in with the lingo now. I've got all the acronyms. <laughs> Sustainable aviation fuel, it's worth uh, mentioning, encompasses many different types of, of fuel. So there's uh, biofuels um, made from the growing of crops. Uh, there's there's heifer fuel, which is made from um, waste oil products like cooking oil. Uh, and more recently, um, in, I guess, a bit of an act of desperation, they're looking at um, household bin bag waste as a potential carbon feedstock uh, to make sustainable fuels, which I think is a little bit uh, sketchy because that that is carbon that was prob that was going to landfill to stay there, and we're talking about turning that into fuel, effectively throwing it into the air as carbon dioxide. But um, certainly, the the majority of sustainable aviation fuel that's going into planes today is uh, biofuels, and we are starting to see sustainable fuels um, entering the market. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that um, our cars today, if, if you go to a forecourt in the, the, the European Union, including the UK, around 10% of your petrol in your car is made from biofuel sources. And so it's, it's now um, aviation is looking at kind of moving up to 10% between now and 2030. And our specific type, synthetic fuels, e-fuels, um, that's a more expensive way of doing it than biofuels. And so the mandate uh, is going to be 0.1 of a percent by 2030, but it's the cleanest way to do it because you don't need a lot of land, you don't need fertilizer, um, it doesn't compete with food crops, so you're not driving up food prices. So there's a lot of benefits to power to liquid fuels, but it is the newest and the most immature technology. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask you because you know you think of um, well, you think of normal kerosene fossil fuels are big, you know, production plants. They've got oil rigs out in the sea sucking up the fuel, like you said, but on a sort of a scale like a is it going to be the size of a football pitch is it going to be the size of you know Manchester like how big a production plant would you need to you know reliably produce this sort of e-fuel? We would like to keep it as small as possible because we think that much like the nuclear industry 
there's a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort that goes into producing these massive, massive installations, which once they're up and running are fantastic. But actually the time and the cost to the environment to actually get them to those places is quite extreme. Whereas if we look at the sort of modular side and actually say, well, let's think about scaling and growth in terms of amount of units versus scale of units. We think that there's a real opportunity there. So size wise, you're looking at quite small installations. We would well, we're doing the design studies currently, but so we can't be too specific, but we're looking at sort of shipping container module sizes plus the sort of land around that you would need to actually do these things. So it's not going to be massive by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I think that's where the real opportunity for growth and actually having a big impact on the environmental, um, on climate change can come into play. Yeah, absolutely. I was imagining much bigger. <laughs> um, but then I think I've already scaled it up in my head to, you know, fuel fuel the entire global <laughs> economy of uh, <laughs> aviation fuel. So I think, yeah, this because this technology and this process is so new, even, you know, a shipping container size could cause a massive, a massive difference, couldn't it? Yes, I, I think the, the the scale will it will depend how much fuel you want to produce. And the UK uses about 15 billion litres of uh, aviation fuel every year. And they're targeting 10% sustainable by 2030. So that's that's 1.5 billion litres. Um, we're targeting for a kind of small demonstration plant around uh, just under 1 million litres. Amazing. I suppose I should ask you, is anyone, you know, has anyone beat you to the punch? Are people flying planes with your sav fuel in it? Or not obviously your sav fuel, but sav fuel, you know, made in this way, made from like power to liquid at the moment? There have been test flights. Uh, certainly with traditional biofuel based SAF, there are planes taking off with that today. And certain airports have uh, a very small percentage in their fuel tanks um, on, on, in the airports. And so any planes that land at that particular airport will uplift a plane with some, some SAF. Um, but with power to liquids, it's been uh, mostly test flights. And um, there, yeah, there's, there's, there's companies in the US, there's one other competitor in the UK that's, that was working with the RAF. Um, and they've, they flew a, an RAF test flight on their power to liquid fuel so there is precedent amazing gosh that's very exciting isn't it i was just going to circle back to the process how because it's not um when you burn it in an aircraft let's say you're still burning co2 co2 is still produced back in the to the atmosphere so it's not um what, what am i trying to say it's carbon neutral because then you're taking that co2 back out to recreate it is that right? So it's not um, like an electric car. The way that works would be that it's not producing CO2 when it runs, right? But your planes are still making CO2. Please feel free to correct me yes. if I butchered that explanation. No, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, you, the, the plane burns the fuel, emits the CO2. We effectively unburn it and turn it back into fuel, and it's this—it's um, recycling. We're effectively recycling the, the CO2, and it goes around in this circle. Um, and there's no net increase in CO2 emissions. And you're displacing fossil fuels, where traditionally that CO2 was stored underground. And when you put that in a plane, it then releases it, and so the, the overall CO2 level goes up. There are uh, some challenges still with uh, these fuels in the sense that the engine may still produce nitrous oxides. Um, when you have heat in an engine, it can smoosh some nitrogen together 
uh, and, and oxygen and, and, and NOx um, is, is, is not necessarily uh, what you want at ground level. Um, I think, so certainly electric cars are great because you're getting rid of the NOx, you're getting rid of the CO2 and you're getting rid of all the, the unburned things. But the, the challenge with aviation is that it doesn't have um, a lot of options to decarbonize really quickly between now and 2030. There are no electric planes or hydrogen planes in service um, today with passengers on board. They are developing them, but the big problem is energy density. And batteries are orders of magnitude less energy dense than a liquid fuel. And so I heard an amazing stat, I'm not, I haven't fact checked this, but uh, apparently to fly the weight of a battery requires more energy than the battery has. So you, electric planes are, 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 are quite challenging. But I think there are some electric plane companies um, and, and hydrogen plane companies that are uh, making a lot of progress. And it looks like we may get those sooner than you think, but those are going to be for short haul and um, with smaller passenger numbers. And I think electric planes are going to be great for, for these short haul flights, but it's going to be uh, quite some time until you see um, all, all the planes in the sky going that route. And so e-fuels are a fantastic um, kind of bridge technology uh, to rapidly decarbonize aviation. And another great thing about it is that when you replace a plane, you know, a plane might have a 30 year lifespan and you've used all this CO2 to make the plane in, in refining the metals and um, manufacturing it. And so if you have to replace that plane with a new electric one, well, that's also you, all these CO2 emissions. So it makes sense to run these things to the end of their useful life. And if you can stick in a carbon neutral fuel, then that's, that's great. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I think it's almost better because it's less, it's requiring less change you're you're blending these fuels with what we have now it's sort of slowly integrating in and the more the technology involves and more companies like yours evolve it's going to be easier to sort of transition away from fossil fuels and into power to liquid fuels yes and you can make any kind of fuel uh, so for example there's a lot of talk about how do we very quickly uh, move away from from uh, methane, nat natural gas in people's homes for for home heating and and, and cooking and um, heat heat pumps are great, but they're they're very expensive and and often you need a bit big overhaul. Um, in theory, you could make methane and you could just um, feed carbon neutral methane into the 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 gas distribution network and so there's there's many other places you could deploy this technology as, as a bridge technology to buy us time whilst we transition to um, alternatives there's also the if you think of it blue sky thinking what can you do once you've got those facilities established and this process is carbon neutral but actually what about being carbon negative and net negative and how can we actually take this technology one step further? And what would that look like in 10, 15, 20 years time? And wouldn't it be cool if these facilities are located near abandoned oil wells and they're then pumping extra CO2 back down into the ground? So you're making fuel, but you're also sequestering. That would be really awesome. So there's loads of opportunities and ideas that we haven't even thought of yet as, as humans that we, we don't know what we're going to do. So it's once we've got this technology established, then we can leapfrog to anywhere really. Yeah, I love the idea of it being carbon negative, eventually be sucking so much CO2 out of the climate that you would uh, be making a really big difference and could, yeah, even sequester that, even sequester that as well. Incredible. What are the biggest challenges, do you think, at the moment facing this sort of new technology, this e-fuel industry in terms of aviation? 
Um, for us, the one that we are definitely encountering is having a provable market that means investors are wanting to invest. And you can obviously understand concerns around, well, this is a thus far unproven technology, despite the fact that the, the individual components are proven. Actually putting it all together and having the funds to set up a facility is expensive. And it takes a very brave, a very conscious investor to actually say, yes, we, we think this is a good idea. So funding is, is tricky. Um, but I think with things like, Alistair mentioned the mandates earlier, things like that really help because it gives validity and it gives confidence to people um, that we don't otherwise have currently. So funding is a big one, but there are solutions out there. And we've also just applied to the Department for Transport's Advanced Fuels Fund. And the Department for Transport's doing a lot of work looking at how do we decarbonise aviation. And they set aside quite quite a large pot of money, uh, $165 million to fund um, sustainable aviation fuel projects. That includes biofuels and uh, the, the spin bag waste to, to jet fuel projects. Um, the, they didn't manage to spend all of the money in window one, and so um, we've applied in window two, and window two is um, for 55 million, of which half of that is, is going towards power-to-liquid projects specifically. Um, so we, we've got our fingers crossed from that uh, for that, because that, that really ha- will help us. And that project, um, that funding being available, has also demonstrated to private investors that government takes this seriously, they believe in the technology, uh, so it's, it's all working together to kind of help this um, new emerging field uh, take off. Other challenges are around electricity supply. Electricity in the UK is really, really expensive. And there are sort of clever things that you can do to um, secure contracts, um, not necessarily going via a commercial route, you go through slightly different avenues. And so there are things you can do, but fundamentally electricity is really expensive and electricity is a massive component of this technology process. But again, because I love a solution, there are, there are alternative options out there. So things like um, small nuclear reactors, really exciting, because once they're up and established, um, there's going to be a whole host of low carbon electricity out there that people like us can capitalise on. Um, and there's also a lot of opportunities in Scotland and places like that where you have an excess supply of electricity that if we can tap into, and this will all come out in our funding and our um our design studies but if we can tap into places like that then that will really really help but that, at the moment that is a challenge because you need the initial electricity to create your fuel to be green otherwise you know there's almost no point is there because you're then burning the fuels exactly yeah so effectively what we're going to be doing is converting electrical potential energy into stored chemical potential energy because uh, as, as we know, the, the first law of thermodynamics says energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be converted from one form to another. I remember that from way back when. <laughs> yeah, it's the only law I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only one you need for your, for your business. Yeah. And I was just going to ask you about safety, because obviously this is very new. Potentially not, the facilities aren't built. The, you know, there's there so many sort of, myths and worry even around nuclear which has been around for long much much longer are there are you finding opposition in safety concerns are people worried because they don't understand what's what's going on there that's a really good question actually i think yeah there there are a few elements to the whole safety thing in that 
as we've mentioned before, the discrete components of the process are proven. And they obviously already have existing rules and regulations that surround them. And there are very, very clever people that understand all of that. And I'm very confident that within each of those um, components that, that that is they are safe processes and but you're right when you put it all together what does that look like and how do you regulate for those things um, in the UK we are a really heavily regulated industry and as I mentioned my background is in nuclear so very acutely aware of of all kinds of regulations that you have to follow um, but I think the the good thing that's coming out of all of these things is that climate change is such a pressing problem and such an urgent issue that we need to address that actually we are being a lot more logical and a lot more sensible about how we address safety concerns. And we are looking at it with a, a bigger picture and going, this is a massive safety problem in terms of the security of the world. Let's talk about how we um, enable those processes that are going to help it. So we haven't got to that stage yet, but I, I'm pretty confident that the right process will be in place. And it's, it's worth mentioning that the uh, chemical engineering uh, discipline um, that we're going to be employing has standard processes and practices for designing uh, chemical plants. And part of that includes, um, so we're going through what's called a front-end loading process, where you try and do as much of the front-end design of the plant prior to engaging with an engineering company that will actually uh, build it. And part of that front-end loading process includes um, ha uh, things like HAZOPS, um, which involves looking at um, your hazards and, um, it, for example, uh, our solid oxide um, electrolyzers, which we're hoping to use, they operate at very high temperatures. Um, you might not necessarily want to put those next to your hydrogen storage tanks, for example. And so this whole process will look at uh, the, the layout of the plants and, and making sure that it's designed to be as, as safe as possible. Yeah, I was thinking about the hydrogen. I mean, obviously it gets combined and smushed together with everything else, but as soon as someone says hydrogen, I just imagine those great big airships from uh, <laughs> from the wars and that sort of thing, which obviously did not go well. But I'm sure, yes, once you've had all these regulations and all these conversations with lots of other people about the best and the safest way to make this. I was wondering what the... How far away do you think this technology is from becoming sort of mainstream? How long do I have to wait before I get on a flight to my nice holiday in the sunshine and the plane is powered by mostly e-fuels or mostly sat fuels? I think by 2030 uh, you will start to see very small amounts in planes and the UK government has said it has to be 0.1% of the fuel tank uh, has to be e-fuels. Uh, KPMG put out a report that said to meet our net zero ambitions by 2050 uh, that, that PTL so power to liquid fuels will need to be at least 40% of a plane's tank or 40% of the total global supply will need to be power to liquid fuels. So it, it, it depends, it's going to depend a lot on the country, on how this rollout goes, um, how electric and hydrogen planes go. But I'm pretty confident within five to 10 years, you, you'll start to see um, noticeable amounts of, of power to liquid SAF. Uh, coming out. Um, whether we'll get to 100% or when we'll get to 100%, I'm not sure. And what blend, will, how much of it will be biofuels versus power to liquid fuels um, remains to be seen. Um, 
the airline industry is very price sensitive. They want ticket prices to be as low as possible. And um, fuel makes up a very large percentage of, of the ticket price, especially for long distance flights. And so power to liquids, as I mentioned, it's one of the more expensive ways of doing it. So you might see if, if there's fossil fuels is squeezed out, that maybe it's 75% uh, biofuels, 25% power to liquid mix or ratio. Um, but the KPMG report that we saw, they thought that biofuels can't be scaled to the um, size required for, for this industry uh, and therefore power to liquids, which don't suffer the same constraints, might take over in the future. So it might be 75%, 25% in favour of power to liquids. Having said that though, there is actually a, pl a planned flight which is being run by Virgin Atlantic in November this year. And obviously that is a, it's a one-off and it's been a, a huge undertaking, I'm sure, by all the teams involved. But they are planning on flying um, from Heathrow to America, somewhere in America, I believe, um, purely on SAF. So that is 100% blend. So it, it won't be mainstream for a very long time, but there are things happening and that is happening in, in 2023. So that's super exciting. Well, that's amazing. I've learnt so much that I didn't even know I didn't know. So thank you both so much. Is there anything else that you want to add before we, we wrap up? No, I think we've covered, uh, covered most of it pretty comprehensively. And one interesting thing about aviation, and I think this um, uh, is quite fascinating, uh, contrails actually contribute quite a lot to the warming effect of taking plane flights, and that's water vapour. Uh, and the reason contrails form is uh, quite often the ice crystals form around soot and dust particles and so impurities in the fuel can contribute to making uh, contrails but sustainable fuels have a lot less um, impurities and so power to liquid fuels should hopefully reduce contrails we don't have the studies or the evidence yet but in theory it should reduce the contrails and that's quite interesting and we also saw a talk that said that contrails can be uh, minimized or, or almost entirely reduced by modifying flight plans and changing routes and so potentially the through technology deployments alone uh, and smarter routing of planes they might be able to reduce that particular warming effect as well which is quite interesting that's so interesting i would never even have thought of contrails as a as a problem as a as anything really other than lines in the sky so that's yeah that's fascinating that contrails could be a thing of the past in the next 10 to 15 years because of this new technology fingers crossed brilliant that's so exciting that we might you know have commercially available flights featuring e-fuels and these carbon neutral fuels within the next 10 years if not if not sooner so thank you sophie and alistair for joining me and i've learned an enormous amount so it's been brilliant to have you both on thank you very much thanks very much Thank you for listening to The Big Questions. Head over to yflscience.com for the latest and greatest science headlines. The music in this episode is credited to audioblocks.com. See you next time.